This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Ten-foot pole. The worlds of our favorite fantasy games are tough places. There's all sorts of people and things trying to trap you, kill you, rip you off, everything. If you're going to survive out there, you've really got to know where your ten-foot pole is. Yes, you heard us correctly. We said ten-foot pole. Because when it comes to ubiquitous gamer tropes in Dungeons & Dragons, the ten-foot pole is probably one of the ubiquitististest. Ubiquitistest. Ubiquitied. Most ubiquitous. Man, do we ever hate adjectives without proper comparative and superlative forms. An adjective needs to be versatile. But we digress. The ten-foot pole. A very ubiquitous item in Dungeons & Dragons. If you're part of a certain gaming generation, anyway. And from America. See, once upon a time, you just couldn't go on an adventure without a ten-foot pole. Nowadays, most of you kids playing Dungeons & Dragons see the ten-foot pole on the equipment list in the player's handbook and wonder why the heck that's even a thing. Well, it's a thing because the ten-foot pole is tremendously versatile and useful in the hands of an imaginative party. Whereas the rules systems of older editions of Dungeons & Dragons were much less so. The 10-foot pole is exactly what it sounds like. It's a wooden pole 10 foot long that the heroes can buy in town and take down into a dungeon with them. And it was first offered for sale way back in the original Dungeons & Dragons game in Volume 1, Men & Magic, which was one of the three books included in the set along with Volume 2, Monsters & Treasure, and Volume 3, The Underworld & Wilderness Adventures. And what did the heroes do with a 10-foot pole? Anything they could imagine. They could use it to probe the depth of water. As a pry bar of sorts. To poke things that appeared to be dead. To pull a makeshift raft. To operate a mysterious switch from a distance. To probe a magical barrier. Or, most importantly of all, to prod for traps and even set some of them off from a safe distance. See, this was in the days before skill checks and just rolling dice to search for trouble and resolve it. If there was a mysterious statue or forgotten treasure chest in a room and you didn't have a specially trained thief character with you, you couldn't just search the thing for booby traps. You had to be creative. And then the 10-foot pole let you be creative from a safe distance. Recall, as we noted last time, that the standard scale for mapping dungeons in the old days was one square on a piece of graph paper represented a square area ten foot on a side? So, if you were ten foot away from something, you were not, in game terms, adjacent to it. Now look, we admit that the ten foot pole is a little silly, and it was probably included on the equipment list as a purposefully silly reference to an idiom we will get to in a little while. The thing is, despite its birth as a silly random idea, it really captured the imagination of gamers at the time. Every party of heroes really did bring a ten-foot pole with them, and players were constantly finding new uses for them. In point of fact, several articles in official publications like Dragon Magazine included clickbait-style lists of ten more uses for a ten-foot pole you won't believe. Really, we're not kidding. We were there. And the ubiquity of the ten-foot pole led to a sort of nasty arms race between game masters and players. 
So while players were using the 10-foot pole to bypass and render harmless all sorts of dungeon hazards, GMs were doing everything to counteract the 10-foot pole. So GMs started extending the blast radius of various traps and hazards, and players countered by bringing along 11-foot poles. And GMs started making magical traps that were only triggered when a living thing touched them, and players countered by tying a live chicken to the end of their 10-foot poles. Again, we were there! The ten-foot pole with a live chicken on the end was a running gag in the gaming community of the day. The point is, what started off as a silly one-off and a weird reference to a common phrase or idiom, which we will get to, captured the imagination of a bunch of nerds and led to a huge, humorous explosion of gaming content. Which brings us around to towels. And if you're of our gaming generation, it should have brought you around to towels as well. Because the first line of this very episode was actually a paraphrase of a line once set of towels in another hugely popular bit of geeky media. Let's talk about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. If you aren't aware of it, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a science fiction franchise based on the works of late novelist and radio and television script writer Douglas Noel Adams, who passed away on May 11th of 2001. We bring him up for three reasons. First, we love his work deeply and miss him terribly. And it's a crime that we've been doing this show for four years and haven't yet mentioned him. Second, we bring him up because of a running gag involving towels in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. And third, we bring him up because the Hitchhiker's Guide franchise started as a gag premise and a reference to a series of books itself, and then, when it captured the fans' imaginations, the volume of content just exploded. And we have to explain that third part before we explain the running gag in the second part. See, The Hitchhiker's Guide is a pretty complex and convoluted franchise. It started out as a radio comedy series, then it was a book, then it was a BBC television series, then some more books got added to round out the trilogy. Then more books got added until it became a trilogy in five parts. Then there was a movie released in 2005. Also, there were a couple of video games, one of which was a sort of spin-off. And then there was a novel about the spin-off. And the books and radio scripts and various bits of media have been republished numerous times with new introductions and forewords and prefaces. And that makes discussing the series kind of complicated. What complicates it most of all is that Douglas Adams himself was a bit of an irreverent joker, and he has related several different origin stories for the series, all of which he insists are true, even the ones that contradict the other ones. But the stories all seem to center around two things, a reference to a book series and an irreverent plot device. And that story starts in 1971 with a book entitled The Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe, Written by Ken Welsh, the book was basically a travelogue for people who wanted to tour Europe, but who didn't have any money. In addition to providing tips for where to sleep and eat on the very cheap in various European countries, it also included advice for how to make quick money, where to find illicit markets, advice for pawning and selling possessions, and, of course, how to hitchhike. Now, hitchhiking is a pretty old practice. It simply means to travel from one place to another by sharing the transportation of someone else. 
someone who happens to be going in the same direction you're going. The word hitchhike is a portmanteau of the words hitch and hike, and while we think of hitch as meaning to connect to something else, the original meaning of the English word, going back to the 12th century, was to move in fits and jerks. The term hitchhike was first used in 1923 in the United States in the magazine The Nation, which described the growing popularity of traveling in that particular manner. And by this point, the first mass-produced automobile was only 15 years old or so. Soon thereafter, thanks to an article in 1925 in the monthly publication Printers, Inc., the gesture of sticking out your thumb to hitch a ride became irrevocably tied to hitchhiking, as the article described the practice of flagging down a driver by pointing your thumb in the direction you wanted to go. The practice seems to have evolved from famous hitchhiker and poet Vachel Lindsay, who in 1916 explained that he would thank drivers for rides by gesturing with his thumb. At least according to some accounts. Anyway, hitchhiking grew in popularity over the decades, and it hit a high point in America and in Europe in the 1970s. Thus, the publication of various travel guides centered around traveling across countries and continents on the cheap by hitchhiking rides. And so it was, supposedly, that Douglas Adams found himself making his way across Europe with a battered copy of the Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe in his pocket. Though Adams himself admitted in the introduction to one of the publications of the Hitchhiker's Guide radio scripts that this story was at least partially concocted or fleshed out by the marketing department of the BBC. Which might also have been a joke. I mean, who knows? But it is believable enough that Douglas Adams would be traveling on the very cheap, because he was struggling to find himself at the time. See, Adams was born in Cambridge in 1952, and although he had a keen interest in science from an early age, a teacher at the Brentwood School encouraged a 10-year-old Adams to pursue a career as a dramatic writer. And so, Adams focused on studying writing. And when he left school in 1970, it was with high hopes of a successful writing career. But that success didn't come. Adams quickly found himself penniless and aimless, struggling to make ends meet with odd jobs. His odd writing style just didn't seem to play well with the style of radio or television at the time. And although he made some brief appearances with Monty Python's Flying Circus, things just didn't work out. And so he found himself making his way across Europe, taking whatever odd jobs he could find, which included work as a bodyguard, a chicken wrangler, a barn builder, and a hospital janitor. And he sank into depression. And this is when he claims that he found himself lying drunk in a field staring up at the stars with a battered copy of the Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe lost in the universe and thinking someone really needed to write a similar guide to said universe. Or at least to the galaxy. Now things did eventually work out for Adams. After writing and publishing a couple of successful essays, he was invited to work with BBC radio producer Graham Chappell on some episodes of his series, Doctor on the Go. And it was during this period that Adams had the idea for a humorous sci-fi series in which each episode was a self-contained story that ended with the destruction of the planet Earth. He realized in writing these episodes that he needed an alien character on Earth who could provide context for the destruction of Earth and invented the idea of a traveling researcher for a travel guide. 
Eventually, these scripts evolved into the first series of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio show, which tells the story of everyman Arthur Dent and his alien friend Ford Prefect, a field researcher for the book of the same name. The pair narrowly escaped the destruction of the Earth, and that's just the start of their adventures. The radio series was an instant hit, and thus came the second series, the books, the BBC series, the video games, spin-off stage adaptations, and so on, and so on. And so also did the running gag about a towel being the most versatile object in the universe, and having so many possible uses that no true hitchhiker would ever think of exploring the galaxy without a towel. And the fact that anyone who could cross the entire width and breadth of the galaxy without ever losing their towel must be a pretty impressive adventurer. So, obviously, the ten-foot pole is just the fantasy version of the towel from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. But why is it a ten-foot pole? Why do they even exist? After all, a towel is a perfectly normal thing that was just co-opted for the sake of a joke. Well, it's a ten-foot pole because of a popular American idiom. And the ten-foot pole figured into the idiom because there really is a common tool that consists of a ten-foot pole. It's called a barge pole. When boating first became a thing, and we're talking about back in the prehistoric days, they were used for crossing rivers and lakes, shallow bodies of water. If you want to learn more about the history of boating, we did a three-part episode about that starting with the Carrick. But for now, we're just briefly mentioning that most such rivercraft were propelled not by oars, but by long poles. The boat's pilot would stand at the rear of the boat, thrust their pole into the water, find purchase at the bottom of the river or stream, and push off. And thus, they could move or steer the boat easily. Now, the poles were particularly ubiquitous wherever river travel was a thing, and they were also extremely versatile. Boatmen and bargemen not only used them to propel their craft, but they would also use them to push away from wharves or fend off other boats or debris in the river. And so it was that in the 1850s through the 1890s, in the United States, especially in places like New Orleans, where barges were particularly common, a certain idiom entered the language. The earliest example seems to come from the official magazine of the Masonic Lodge of the United States, which criticized the wealthy elite of the country by saying they would not condescend to touch a poor man with a ten-foot pole. Similarly, literature from throughout the era also referred to either a ten-foot pole or a barge pole in the same way. Basically, it referred to something so undesirable or so unpleasant no one would want to get close enough to touch it with a bargeman's pole. A ten-foot pole. And thus, an idiom was born. And a hundred years and a bit later, an immensely popular and useful item for dungeon-delving adventurers was born from it. But... The problem with idioms is that they are usually very specific to the language or culture in which they originated. In fact, that's actually what the word idiom means. Although the technical definition of an idiom is usually given as an expression or phrase whose meaning is more metaphorical than literal, and therefore the phrase doesn't translate well into other languages, the actual word idiom was coined in the 1580s, and it meant a phrase specific to a certain place or group of people. And that comes from an older Greek word that, well, doesn't translate well, ironically enough. But it sort of means a peculiar way of saying something. And that word derives from an even earlier word that means to take something for yourself. Anyway, our point is that the idiomatic nature 
of the ten-foot pole means that while it did capture the imaginations of a certain generation of American gamers, it tended to just cause confusion among gamers in other countries once Dungeons and Dragons started to make its way in fits and starts across Europe. And that's partly because America is one of only three nations that is so backwards that it never adopted the international system of units of measurement, also known as the metric system. Or so its detractors decry. So, let's talk about the U.S. customary system of measurement, and why it doesn't use the metric system, except where it does, and where the U.S. customary system even came from. To be clear, first of all, the United States has actually adopted the metric system. U.S. Code, Title 15, Chapter 6, Subchapter 2, Section 205B, the Federal Law of the United States, declares the metric system preferable and even states that federal agencies are required to use the metric system whenever feasible. And most international scientific agencies in the United States use the International Standard, or SI, system of measure, which is based on the metric system. But commercially and privately, most companies and people in the United States still use U.S. customary or foot-pound systems. And the reason why is a matter of a strange quirk of timing and a lot of money. Now, back when the United States was still just a bunch of colonies under the control of the British Empire, the colonies followed the British imperial system. The British imperial system was an attempt to clean up a gigantic mess that was hundreds of years old. The problem was, after the fall of the Roman Empire, trade sort of dried up and there was no central authority to administer any sort of standard weights or measures. So systems of measurement were a largely local affair. By the 10th century, what with all the different people who had occupied, emigrated to, or conquered the British Isles, there were numerous systems of measure in place. Roman systems, Celtic systems, Saxon systems, and actually, this was a problem across all of Europe. But trade became more and more important as the Middle Ages wore on. And, as we mentioned recently, barter was falling out of favor. So everyone needed a way to agree on how much of something there was when they agreed to buy it. And thus, it fell to various rulers to standardize various units of weight. The idea, by the way, that this was a system whereby a foot was based on the measure of the current king's foot is a popular myth. Starting with King Edgar the Peaceable in the 10th century and continuing through the next 600 years, a standard set of units, some Roman, some Celtic, some Saxon, was built up. King Edgar made the bushel, the yard, the foot, and the inch standard. King Henry VII added units of volume. Units of area like the acre were added, as well as additional units of length like the rod and the furlong by Queen Elizabeth I. And so on. So the Americans inherited the British system. And then in the 1790s, the French invented their own standard system, the metric system. We talked about that in our episode on Grognard. But America was never invited to adopt the new system because the French were really bitter. At the time of the American Revolution, France was pretty happy to help out the upstart Americans, especially because of their rivalry with the British Empire. But the friendship between France and America was short-lived. In 1795, the United States signed a trade agreement with the British Empire that greatly strengthened the relations between the two nations. It was called Jay's Treaty. And the French were livid. 
So livid, in fact, that they started hiring privateers, government pirates, to harass American trade ships. Hostilities between France and America became extremely heated. And then, in 1798, France invited dignitaries from all over the world to check out their new measurement system, the metric system. But somehow, they forgot to invite anyone from America. Meanwhile, the Brits weren't too keen on adopting the metric system either. And a lot of folks assumed that once Napoleon fell out of power, the metric system would fail too. But it didn't. And it gradually started spreading across Europe over the next 50 years. But by the time the question was raised in America about the metric system again, after the hostilities with France died down and it had gained a full foothold in Europe, something very big had happened. The Industrial Revolution. And the United States, in 1824, had adopted the U.S. customary system based on the British system. So all of the industrial machinery and all business done in the United States was based on those imperial units. And because of the Industrial Revolution, that was no small amount of machinery and business. The fact of the matter is that it would have cost the still-fledgling but growing nation a huge amount of money to switch over to the metric system after they had fully industrialized, whereas most of Europe had switched over before industrialization had taken full hold. And every year after, the amount of retooling and expense it would take to switch over, and the amount of time it would take, grew exponentially. But do also keep in mind that it took even France about 40 years to fully change over to the metric system before industrialization. And the rest of Europe took half a decade. And it took tremendous expense. But that's neither here nor there. The point is that the 10-foot pole, for all of its explosive popularity, was still a product of its time and a part of the culture that birthed it, just like Adam's towel was for intergalactic hitchhikers everywhere. Nowadays, it's mostly just a funny little gaming footnote. But really, it's all just a matter of timing. And only a genuinely hoopy frood really knows where their towel and 10-foot pole is. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>